When we watch a great film on Friendly Fire, it's only natural to praise its director the most. It's easy to do, and every critic does it, from the film reviewers in the newspaper to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. But you and I, and those same directors, all know that it takes a video village to bring a film from the page to the screen to the stage accepting an award. Personally, I think it's the editors that get the shortest shrift in these cases, but the person who's often just as responsible as a director for how a film looks and feels is the cinematographer, which is what makes the partnership between they and the director so crucial in filmmaking. If a director is lucky, they form a bond with one for most of their oeuvre. Paul Thomas Anderson and Robert Ellswit. Spielberg and Janice Kaminsky, Christopher Nolan and Wally Pfister. And sometimes you'll get some cinematography polyamory. Oliver Stone, Quentin Tarantino, and Martin Scorsese share Robert Richardson. Of course, a counterpoint to this film paper is that Catherine Bigelow has worked with many different cinematographers over the years. Roger Deakins, on camera for Sam Mendes' 1917, is widely considered to be one of the greatest and most influential cinematographers in the history of film. His film resume is a mile long. Think about a film you love the look of over the last 20 years, and chances are that film was shot by Deakins. And while I know I'm prone to hyperbole, that's not just coming from me. Such is his reputation as an artist and collaborator that when he finally won his first Academy Award on his 14th nomination for his work in 2018, he received a standing ovation. So while Sam Mendes has everything to do with the story of 1917, inspired by those stories told to him by his grandfather, how the film looks is classic Deacon's. Consider the changing light and color as our characters move from their bunker through no man's land to the verdant farmland and the abandoned farmhouse to the bombed out village of Aku Saint Mien, lit by occasional flares. Then there's the river and the forest and the final battle as Schofield sprints perpendicular to the charge he's desperate to call off. It's breathtaking, wide angle tracking shot catnip, and I am here. For it. World War I is regarded as so challenging to make films about because so much of the conflict was unmoving and entrenched. But in 1917, the camera moves constantly, introducing and removing things from the frame, using light and color to evoke feelings of dread, fear, and hope. At this level, it's not just cinematography. Deacons makes moving pictures in every sense. On today's Friendly Fire, there is only one way this war ends, Last Man Standing. As we return from a trip to the movie theater where we saw Sam Mendez's World War I epic, 1917. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that hopes this will be a good episode. Hope can be a dangerous thing. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. 
And I'm John Roderick. Hope. How's that hopey, changey thing going for you guys? <laughs> it's morning in America, Ben. Yeah, you, you, you sent a, a text message that uh, really made me laugh last night, which was you... Just a selfie of you outside the movie theater, like like last screening of the night for for nineteen seventeen, which uh, you know, like I I uh, I kind of assumed that you and Adam would go see it together since you guys live in the same city, but uh, but no. Well, we we intended to, and then here's how it broke down. I I'm was... not sure if you know this, Ben, but John is exceedingly hard to nail down to any kind of schedule. I was at band practice. Huh my band practice and i get a text from adam that's like are we going to see this movie i got tickets for 245 or whatever and it was 215 yeah but that was that was related to two other texts where i was like hey it's playing here at this time do you want to go crickets i didn't see those hey again uh i'm planning on seeing this on sunday do you want in on this yeah maybe i saw them maybe i saw them but i was and then finally i'm on my way there and i'm like hey dude uh do you want to meet up there are you gonna go see this on your own yeah (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, I'm pra- I'm at my cool band practice. Do you want to come to band practice instead? Yeah, I thought you you'd tried to, to invite me to band practice. I thought you'd like to come to band practice. You know what that was? That was you knowing I couldn't come to band practice, and you like getting the credit for inviting me to a cool thing that you knew I wouldn't be able to cash in on. No, that's. Not- I saw it in a, in the way that I think John would have preferred to see it, <laughs> which was with my wife and Adam's wife. Oh, hello. Were you sitting in the middle? <laughs> How did I miss this opportunity? With a very small popcorn no, bucket in your lap, two hot wives. So it was, it was my wife, Adam's wife, uh, a friend of my wife's, and uh, a gentleman she's seeing. Oh, and boo! We we get into the theater. I sit next to the gentleman, and then my wife and Adam's wife go sit on the far side of my wife's other friend. That's, <laughs> That's great, Ben Harrison story. <laughs> so, yeah, I was I was down on the end next to the dude. <laughs> <laughs> Only you, Ben, could turn that hot penthouse forum story into just a just a cuck. Of, I never thought this would happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> a film filled with many titillations is 1917, huh? Did you feel titillated by it? Indeed. Uh, here's the thing about 1917. The the only thing I knew about it before going in was that it was going to be it was going to have the effect of one unbroken shot. Right. And I want to I want to put this out to the group because as soon as the film started and you I I really feel like over the years we have been hypnotized into what a film is supposed to look like in in sequences. We're given these packages of sequences that include conversations that are shots and reverse shots and establishing shots like there's a rhythm to a film that that is familiar to most people. I wonder if if that was distracting to anyone else because I tried so hard to just let it go and not and to get out of my filmmaker mind that was trying to study how this was happening <laughs> and just enjoy the story a story which I mean cutting to the end I really love this film and I really love the story but I didn't feel like I could fully be into it because I was studying it as I was watching it in a way that I I wish I hadn't it felt like watching a 3D movie where you were trying to you 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 were waiting for and trying to decode the times that uh, somebody's going to throw a tennis ball at you, and I think the gimmick of it also affected the performances sometimes 
because you got a, I at least got a feeling, and particularly from some of the, uh, you know, some of the other actors, right? The ones that only have a, a couple of lines in the movie and they're very conscious and you feel them saying their lines in a conscious way, a self-conscious way, because they're part of a much longer and larger shot and they don't get a chance to take five takes at it. And so you feel them really deliver their line and, and, and it sticks out a little bit like a sore thumb um, because because there's a lot more pressure on everybody to not screw it up because this shot started a long time ago. See, you already are further down the road than I was in my head watching this film. I feel like I, I could not concentrate on the performances like I maybe could have in a more conventionally made film. Because you were you were wondering where the it was going to stitch together with another shot. I couldn't shot. turn off my mind. I, I was looking for the breaks. Well, like, you guys- I, I got it. I think that's symptomatic of you being in film studies mode. Though. Yeah. Like you're going to this movie because you know you're going to cast pot about it in a couple of days. It was talking to you two that, that taught me about how what can seem like an uninterrupted shot is actually two spliced together because they go across a phone pole mm-hmm. or you know there's some there's some place that mm-hmm. you can make the stitch. So I was doing it too. Yeah, and I was surprised how many phone poles they had in there. <laughs> yeah. A lot of panning <laughs> across, you know, like a like a uh, some kind of uh, facade or something. It looks like a continuous shot, but I was noticing all the stitch points. I was able to push it all back in my mind and just enjoy the movie and I guess I attribute that to like having had to learn that after film school because there was, you know, from the time I went to film school, there was a time of like a period of like five years where I couldn't enjoy any movie on the basis of it being a movie. I felt like the only way I could experience it was from a position of professional interest. And that took a lot of work to like rebuild the just like fun moviegoer person inside me. This is not to say that I didn't have fun in the film at all, but it definitely makes me want to see it again and and to see it in a way that could put that part of my mind to rest, having already gone through it once. Admit it, Adam. You want to see this movie high. I mean, yeah, I think that would probably help. I have my uses. You can understand Sam Mendes's point in doing it this way, in, in creating the kind of stress that one unbroken shot can create. Do you feel like he might have lost something in either doing it this way or or if the film gains or loses something by being created in a more conventional fashion? I mean, it's like the highest degree of difficulty to yeah. make a film this way. Like you can't, if you decide a scene doesn't work, it means you have to go back and reshoot an entire section of the film, you know? Like, you can't just leave it on the cutting room floor. But if the premise for a creator is the story comes first, is this the right choice? I think it is, because, the I mean, the classic problem with World War One is how do you tell a story about a war that didn't change that much? Yeah. Like, it's been observed by uh, several critics whose reviews I read that, you know, this is the movie that figures out how to add momentum to a war that had none well i i haven't i intentionally didn't read any of the reviews of it i was definitely affected by the fact that just in my normal twitter stream and normal interaction with the culture 
there was all this sort of pressure appreciation of the movie um but what they what sam mendez figured out how to do was tell a world war one story that was not really indicative or did not exemplify any aspect of world war one that world war one is not a movie about or i'm sorry <laughs> world war one is not a war <laughs> that's about one boy's adventure roaming across the countryside encountering at one point or another something that was emblematic of a different aspect of world war one. He's in the trenches. He's in a bombed out village. He encounters a, a biplane dogfight. He does all these different, all these different things. And really the story of world war one is not about any, about a soldier encountering every aspect of world war one. It was mostly about people sitting in the mud for three years, staring out over a parapet <laughs> where bombs were falling yeah. on them all the time. Yeah. These guys didn't get like, trench rot in their feet or anything like no that. this was a commando mission basically and that's that's not characteristic of world war one so that so that anyway if that is the critical consensus i feel like that's also a ding on the movie because it's like oh you know i wanted to tell the story of of uh of a marriage so i so i did it by showing this guy go across the world and it's like what did you make john of the this this was set on April 6th, 1917, which I think is the date that the U.S. officially entered the war. Right. That seems su su way too significant to not be intentional. I mean, it's also this also is based on stories that Sam Mendes's grandfather uh, told him about his experience in World War One. But well, you know the 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 central plot idea which was the the Germans are retreating to the Hindenburg line which is this you know this tr this trench line that they had a long because it was well back of where they where the actual line was the Hindenburg trench was filled with hydrogen right yeah that's right it's, which was a bad idea in yeah, the end because no. it hit that power line you and, do not <sighs> want to do that <laughs> but you, I heard it was filled with the humanity <laughs> But what it allowed them to do was have the time and and, you know, direct the resources to building this incredibly fortified line uh, behind their lines and then retreat to it. And the Germans were doing that conscious of the fact that America was coming into the war, that America didn't join World War One because of a Pearl Harbor. I mean, they they took their sweet time, but they also telegraphed that they were on their way over there. And so the Germans knew it was coming. The British knew it was coming. And this retreat to the Hindenburg line was a German um, strategy to be prepared for the arrival of the Americans. So it's, it's, all, it's all part of the setting. Like the, here comes the U.S. Army, and that's going to really change the dynamic of this war. Um, but it's never, we never hear any reference to the United States. It's not. It's not a another character in the movie because no one in theater would have known about America's entry into the war f until much later. That's not how news traveled. I'm not sure anybody in the theater that wasn't a student of World War One would know anything about what was going on. You said something earlier. I want to dig into a little bit before moving on, which is like you know this isn't this isn't a movie about World War One because this is a movie about two guys like this is lord of the rings basically yeah, it is it really is like on their way to mordor but to what extent or do you saving think private ryan is what it is does a does a war movie in order to be called a good war movie have to have to ably 
depict the war that it's taking place in to an extent that is satisfying. Well, it's part of the what to me, and I don't want to be the one that shits on the movie that every single person loves. Of course um, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. But it's a question of who is the movie for? You know, it falls into that who is this movie for uh, category. If it's Saving Private Ryan set in World War One, um, it's just it's an adventure movie. It's um, is it a is it a is it a war movie? Like the story of World War One that makes it so hard to tell is that it is a static. Uh, it, it's strategically static. I I just I disagree with your premise because this film has maps and strategy. Yeah, and and we I think we know enough about what's happening here because our our because Frodo and <laughs> and uh, Samwise are told what's happening strategically. They're told why their mission is crucial. They go and do the thing. They travel through the theater. Yeah, they do. It's Indiana Jones. The only thing that the movie was just slightly too serious to actually have a dotted line appear on a map. Because these guys don't don't have <laughs> don't have foot rot like that. I mean, they that kind isn't of, enough war for you. They kind of did have foot rot, but I I don't know. I mean, it's it's a certain like multiple times our main character basically climbs over rotting bodies. Now that is sensationalistic from a filmmaking standpoint. There aren't that many. There are not that many theaters of war where a soldier would encounter hundreds of bodies that they climb over. That is a very World War One thing, right? Because they they weren't able to retrieve bodies that were in no man's land. People people were dying in the millions. And so there is that the horror of like You could accidentally put your hand down and it go through the hole in a dead guy's chest. Yeah, or like you're swimming down a river and it's like an idyllic moment in your life. Schofield's getting his hand amputated (laughs) uh, not long after the end of this film, right? Oh, his hand is full of infection. Yeah. Yeah. Although this all took place in the space of a day. Yeah. Right? He could do a Rambo thing where he puts a bullet in there and then sets it on fire, cauterizes the wound, and then he's walking around on a a leg that had a 50 caliber bullet in it. I kept waiting for him to get like people offered him alcohol at one point, and I was like, "Dump that on your hand, right. dude!" Right, put it on the hand. That's probably like it's a, probably a, a real faux pas, though, right? Like yeah, right. you meet some some soldier, and he's got a, a little flask of whiskey, and you're like, "Hey, it's thanks." A, it's dump. also a terrible Sir Mix-a-Lot song. <laughs> I think this film did something really interesting with its depiction of like the many grotesqueries on the battlefield. And I think one thing that really worked in its favor was that while this movie was filled with thousands of dead bodies, it's color temperature and it's contrast was such that you really had to look right. for the bodies to find the bodies in frame. They're hiding in plain sight almost. Yeah, it was an Easter in egg a really hunt of, useful way of people's mandibles. I, I mean, I thought that was tasteful is what I'm saying. Oh, tasteful. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> What if that was your grandfather whose whose rigor rigor mortis <laughs> hand was pull, coming this up out of a mud? This is an Omaha beach and a guy in center frame looking around for his severed arm on the ground. Like this is this is a guy in the corner of the frame looking like everything else in the frame. I 100% agree that that was super effective. I mean, let's just let's just come out and say that this is a beautiful movie. Right. And there are at least four or five shots that are among the great war movie shots of all time, right? Just like so powerful, you have to see it in theaters level of just beautiful yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. The, so the dead bodies, the presence of the dead bodies and the horror that that creates and the situation, you know, that the, 
the thing is, those were the moments where I was squirming in my chair, where it's just like, okay, he's climbing over dead bodies. Let's get to the end of that. And then he's climbing over more dead bodies. Yeah. That's profound. And that does tell a story of World War One. It's just that, that you know, I, I just didn't like the supermarket aspect of like, well, let's, ten, like, let's find the 10 things or the seven things that characterize World War One and have one guy experience them all. It's it just it felt a little bit like Pearl Harbor in that way. That's an interesting point. Like the yeah, like the the one guy who gets to experience like a a a large cross section of the war is something that we've encountered a number of times. He's in a bunker that's collapsing. He's in his own trench multiple times. He's in Allied trenches multiple times. He's also in a German trench. We see a dogfight, like which I was talking to. Uh, the folks I went out to see the movie with after and learned that the, that was not really a phenomenon earlier in the war that like, like all the technology of putting guns on airplanes didn't, didn't emerge till around this time, like <laughs> earlier in the war, the way you would get a, uh, get an enemy plane out of the air was to drop a brick through the uh, wing of it. <laughs> like as another Fabric airplane, wings. right? Yeah. Well, and those early planes were rickety and mostly used for spotting. Um, and these guys, they, you know, they all, but, but we also see a tank in a trench. We see uh, the, uh, you know, we see the artillery camp where the guns have been, you know, we see a burning village. We see a, we just see it all. And that's, I mean, that's, I think important if you're, if this is a prime, a world war one primer. I don't understand this argument because you were just proceeding from the premise of this film being insufficiently complete in its yeah, in its ability to tell the World War One story. No. And now you're saying like we see too much stuff. Not in I was not saying that this this movie was incomplete. I'm saying that World War One was a thing that was experienced by people in small chunks. No one ever saw the whole picture. That was part of the reason that World War One was what it was. If as a storyteller, you're trying to tell a story in a way that that shows all of these things. Then put Ben Affleck both in Battle of Britain and in Pearl Harbor and in the, <laughs> the, the Mitchell raids of uh, Japan. That's how you do it. And we totally slagged that in Pearl Harbor. Also, it's, bec it's because he's Ben Affleck, right? We, fl we, we slagged it. There's no <laughs> Affleck level of of Razzie worthy performance in this movie. That's for sure. I think one of this film's many strengths is the, is the Chapman and McKay performances. I think, I think they have an everyman quality to them that I really like. I really like their friendship. And the moment that, uh, the Blake character dies, I was super affected by. It was a, it was a cool filmmaking moment to kill who was nominally your, main character who we were sort of trained to believe was the lead yeah. like i i thought the schofield character was the second and always would be right and was always going to be grousing and yeah yeah that was a that was a cool and yeah. powerful moment. why'd you make me do this i uh i could tell that blake was in for it though because uh schofield kept having bad things happen to him and blake kept not <laughs> and it was like oh man <laughs> The, uh, the ledger is going to get balanced at a certain point. You rarely see a character bleed out and go gray the way that Blake does in this film, and that gave me chills to see. Do you guys want to hear a, uh, a complaint that a pedant had about the way the war was depicted? Yes. 
During several scenes where Lance Corporal Schofield is being shot at in the town, the sound of the gun can be heard and then the bullet ricochet near him. This is inaccurate as the bullet ricochet would be followed by the gunshot as the bullet is traveling faster than the speed of sound. This film is very sceney, right? Like there's the there's the intermediate travel between places and then there are, there are like tentpole scenes in this film and that's one of them when uh when Schofield gets to that town at night and then he's shot by the sniper we get that passage of time and then he wakes up and that entire 15 minute sequence that follows is lit by the flares and the magic of like there's sort of a time lapse effect to what happens with the shadows in it as he moves through town and he and he gets into that skirmish with the German soldiers that, that the pedant's talking about. It was a breathtaking sequence. And I don't think I'd ever seen it done like that before. Like with the flares, I mean, specifically. It was just a fantastic sequence. I was uh, wondering how that was going to work because what I had heard before I saw the movie was it's one unbroken shot. And then in the trailers, I'd seen night and day. And I was like, how are yeah. they going to get between those two time periods? And I thought the uh, the fact that he's knocked out for eight or 10 hours is was a really brilliant uh, idea. It's, it's really two unbroken shots. It's not one. It makes it about a character's unbroken experience rather than than time being unbroken itself. This is also the setting of, I think, maybe one of the only depictions of a woman in the film. Uh, the only. He uh, he kicks in a cellar window, slides through, and finds a woman with a baby, just making a go of it in this burned-out town. Pretty haunting moment to be in that room with her, and uh, and boy, that canteen of milk comes in handy. Sure does. I mean, that, it just goes to show, like, if you get a chance to fill your canteen with fresh milk in a pail that isn't booby-trapped, <laughs> right? Um, then do it. You never know when you're going to meet a baby. <laughs> There's a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one moment that kind of almost felt like magical realism. Oh, this is perfect. I actually happen to have a ton of milk. The odds of that having been the case are pretty low. It almost makes me think it's it's like the story that the grandpa told Sam Mendes, you know, being being what's at play in that part of the film. Because I feel like you can just as easily and more realistically make a point about how fucking horrible this war is by saying like, yeah, there's not really not any way to feed this baby and then just let us marinate in that how know. this young woman is living in the wreckage of accoussement or accoussement is magical for sure within the movie but that I, I but i see adam squirming in his chair because he feels like i'm being pedantic but at that point in the movie <laughs> at the at that point in the movie we go away from it it really becomes a hobbit adventure because the germans are basically orcs or Nazgul, like shitty Nazgul, <laughs> right? They fly down every once in a while. For whatever reason, no German soldier, as they're chasing him through the village, ever stops and takes aim. They run behind him 
just shooting sort of like shooting from the hip kapow kapow um if any one of those guys just stopped and took aim they could have shot him in the back of the neck They're, they weren't that far back from him it, it made it into like a commando mission but also one where there was just a lot of My- single shoddy stuff it almost felt like it almost felt like a west wing episode where people were just <laughs> Walking and talking. You know? <laughs> Were you not meant to infer from the way that guy was shooting at Schofield that uh, a couple times that he was also the drunk guy later around his improvised campfire while Schofield was choking out uh, his partner? I didn't infer that. No. Okay. I I just sort of thought they were the same person. And so, if you're a drunk guy, sure, shooting from the hip, I, my head cannon would. Make that make sense. Why didn't he knife the drunk guy? It would have solved a lot of problems for him. And instead, what he did was drop his rifle and run. It's interesting how much trust the Schofield character gives to his enemies. Uh, the same trust is is given to the downed pilot. Uh, when Schofield turns his back, Blake gets stabbed. Uh, Schofield does the same thing to the young guy uh he takes the hand off of his his mouth and tells him not to scream obviously he's going to scream at, in that moment they look at each other and they have a they have a moment don't they yeah. like an almost romantic moment like if i take my hand away will you be good and yeah. the young soldier's like yes i'll be good yeah and that's almost taken right out of saving private ryan that scene where uh they go into the church tower and the one guy is fighting the other guy and he sticks you know he's got the knife right on him and and he's and then he goes shh shh you know just die mm-hmm. just die like a quiet boy mm-hmm. um. <laughs> well i think that like i mean it is a commando mission in a lot of ways but they're not like modern special ops soldiers they haven't been trained in krav maga so i i really believed the like not knifing the drunk soldier moment because i felt like he was just panicking and and he was just like yeah i gotta get out of here like this is like a version of combat that he was never trained for and and a situation that he has no idea what to do in. This isn't a where's your guy moment yet, Ben. My, <laughs> ben. my guy is that guy's fear. I really dig that observation, though. Like so often his first instinct is to run. Right. Although he is a decorated war veteran and we never find out why. Yeah. And he's he's. He is the guy in the movie that's the, that's very cynical about his medal, so it may that may be broadcasting the fact that he feels like he didn't do anything valorous, and he isn't really like the great soldier that that the medal would indicate. Well, in the comparison that he makes, like for Blake, is like, yeah, you like dug me out of the rubble. Like he like Blake saved his life, but he also it wasn't like the language that they dressed that up in like showed unusual valor in digging me out of the rubble or whatever like that seemed to highlight that he thinks that that's sort of bullshit i didn't think this movie had it in it to do the jump scare thing but when that rat hit the trip wire it totally put me on edge for the rest of the film like <laughs> this is possible because so much of it is like the way that this film is paced like we start at the tree and we're just walking we're walking and sometimes running but not often right uh, we're patrolling and looking and hiding, but until that tripwire goes off, and then evermore after that moment, you didn't trust. I didn't trust that it was ever going to be safe again right. in a way that I thought was great. Like start there. That was that was a useful moment. Whoa!
we've seen a number of films where the the war is the bad guy like it's almost irrelevant who we're fighting against but the the germans are really the bad guys in this movie the you know leaving booby traps in their trenches and you know killing the cows and like that like this movie really like makes the case that the germans were really fucked up in this war and i when i was reading about the like retreat to the hindenburg line it seems like that was this was kind of a a point in the war that turned the opinion of neutral countries against the germans because of how brutalized they left the places they had retreated from. This film really makes them seem as though they are the superior army and intellect. Like they're the better equipped. Their their trenches are great. There's there's like a bewilderment that Blake and Schofield feel like, wow, look at all these racks down here. Like they they really did the thing. And I think that's pretty accurate uh, in conveying the attitude that the allies had about the Germans, that they were formidable. What we see later in in World War II, which is that they have all these miracle weapons and that they are some kind of like united Teutonic fighting force in a way that the Commonwealth soldiers, you know, never could quite. Because like the British and the French soldiers didn't love each other in the war. And there were an awful lot of colonial, uh, like British colonial fighters and French colonial fighters. And the Germans were just this mass of blondes. Mm. <laughs> Scary blondes. I'm traveling through this world of war. Was the depiction of the units as being like fairly integrated in terms of like people from the colonies accurate? Like I don't think so. I think that was a I think that was a modern a little bit of modern pandering. I can't say for sure, but I feel like they were segregated regiments. Does the Devons indicate that those soldiers were all from Devonshire? They're drawn from one place? This was a thing in World War I that you could enlist with your friends and that they were drawn from one place. And I think that, I think that maybe the experience of seeing a whole, the, the sons of an entire village or region all wiped out was a lesson for the military uh, to not do that because – you could have a situation where all the boys in a town all enlisted and then they were all in one fight where they all died. And right. This it was it was saving private Ryan's all the way down. Right. If you can imagine going back to whatever village in Devonshire that was and just like try you know, trying to buy some bread in the store while the entire town is completely traumatized. Yeah, it, well, it's also just impractical because you got to have the guy drive down the the driveway and and deliver the news to the to the war widow. And if if you need like three hundred of that guy one day for one town, it's just it's a it strains resources, right? No, I think he just goes and stands by the by the fountain, stands by the well in the center of town, and rings a bell. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye! Every boy is dead. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> The, the Oscars for this movie should go to costume, set design, art direction. Like the thing that made me trust this movie from the very beginning was just that that stuff, it, continuity, it was just impeccable, right? The, the look of it was, was beautiful and perfect. And 
you know, and maybe it's a little bit of a ding that the that the dirt and desolation was also so perfect that it kind of it kind of only you would ding something for for its quality and attention to that detail. (laughs) I just felt I mean, as we're going through the trenches and we see what 1000 extras probably and they're doing like every photo I've ever seen of World War One of men you know, kind of trying to get, trying to sleep embedded in the mud wall of their trench, uh, guys splayed about guys ready to go over the top. You know, again, every single photograph that exists in world war one appears as a tableau at some point in this movie. So that if you're watching it and you're like, well, wait a minute, what about the, what about the solitary (laughs) tree that was burned? Oh, there it is. Well, wait a minute. What about the guy? What about the three French guys that are poking their? Oh, there, there, that's there too. Your criticism is so hard to pin down because out of one side of your mouth, you're saying, "Wow, look at the attention to detail that Sam Mendes gives this thing." That's and then, the right side. Of my and mouth. then on the other side of the mouth, you're like, "You know, uh, I really wish that Sam Mendes got a little more risky and interesting with his depiction of that's, this." That's the left side of my mouth. I don't know. I don't know what you. I don't not, know what else you want not, from this. Not risky. I'm just pointing out that like it is. It's absolutely a. What Max is it? Funkenstein. <laughs> John Roderick at maxfunkenstein.sex is where you can direct your criticisms of John's criticism. I don't see. I don't see how that isn't that isn't eventually like a a, a director whose desire is to make a great film. Who's using, who's using us, but it's also a stunt film. Like it's, a, it's in a, in a way it's like Dunkirk. The director has a stunt in mind. And in Dunkirk, it is let's play with time. And in this movie, it's let's do one continuous shot. And that stunt is, as we've discussed already a little bit like, Hmm, okay. It's, a, it's a stunt movie. So we're watching for it or we're taken out of it a little bit. And then additionally, he, you can see him with his staff, like looking at a looking at a giant table with a hundred pictures on it depicting World War One, and he's like, "I want it all. I want, I want this. I want that. <laughs> one of each. Yeah, I want one of each. Right? <laughs> I want like, I want every one of these. I want the, I want the church on fire. I want, but also things and and every depiction in all of those films is." insufficiently no they're like, all they're all great but like but it but just, that insufficiently tells the story of world war one to you when he when he falls in the river when he's running from the guy and he jumps in the river and it's basically a scene taken directly from no country for old men where he's being chased by the by the drug dealers another and another roger deacon's film by the by right and I think he, that's why this film looks so good he jumps in the river and then he's floating down the river but being chased by a pit bull in that movie. I really love Roger Deakins as a cinematographer. I think he's really great. It's it, and it, it's great. It's great. But then he's in a waterfall and then he's in a helicopter and then he's in a hovercraft. Like that that waterfall was the one like they definitely had a digital face on a stuntman <laughs> moment. But also like I, and I and and I hate to, you know, I hate to tell my jo- jail story again. But I've been I've been to this part of the front in my World War One tours, which you can sign up for at John Roderick at MaxFunkenstein.sex, uh, where I lead a guided tour of interested parties across the Western Front. 
but I've been to these trenches and the landscape is not the landscapes certainly in on the Belgian side flat and mostly underwater. Now on the French side, like this is sort of near to Calais and I don't, I, I tried to look into this to see if there's any point at which a river in this part of France becomes a class two rapid, but he's going down that river. Like he's in deliverance. Then he hits a waterfall and it's just like, wow, uh, where is Boromir in this situation? Like, (laughs) I think interestingly, that scene is shot almost entirely from above. And so you don't really get a sense of the river scale. Like there is some shooting in profile when he's floating through it. But when he goes over the waterfall, we've tilted the camera top down. So you don't really get an understanding of the waterfall's uh, height. Right. Well, we see him fall and it seems like the it seems like the camera is at 100 feet. And then we watch the water burble. And at some point, the camera has been zooming that whole time, although we don't, we're not conscious of it zooming because when we do see him appear, the camera is at 20 feet. I I wasn't sure why they did it that way. Why you wouldn't at least keep the camera at a constant altitude. And then once he reappears, because I kept waiting for him to reappear as a, as a three inch dot. Mm -hmm. But when he does, he reappears as a, as a two foot dot. And if it's two feet across, it's not a dot. Boom. Boom, well, mic drop. I'm sure I'm sure Roger Deakins would love to get your note on this. Yeah, well. <laughs> when he listens to this show and contributes to Max Fun. I think he already has with this great movie. I did like the fact that everybody looked like a normal person, except for uh for Bumberdink Cumberbunch, uh, who is like extremely handsome. Everybody else looked great. He had that badass scar. He did have a good scar. He had a Tales of Gerard-like scar. All of the people who have already watched that movie... uh, Tales of Gerard. ...will will love that reference. You think there are a lot of people... Tales of Gerard isn't even the name of the movie, Adam. (laughs) I love that you think anyone has seen that movie. All the Gerard heads will know what I'm talking about. Uh, Gerard Gerard had one of the other war films that that Sam Mendes. Yeah, Gerard had about the, mm. about Iwo Jima, right? Uh, doesn't your dog have Gerard head right now? You're a Gerard head. <laughs> in the in the regularness of the people of the of the other soldiers and of the of their gingerness, I kept waiting for the Ed Sheeran cameo. Sorry, that was a that was a Game of Thrones reference, and I'm and I, and I feel like it fell on deaf ears so so you were saying earlier in the in our session here that uh, that you were very conscious of the uh, the constraints on the actors that had uh, shorter roles in this film and I I thought they all comported themselves pretty well and especially uh, the guy that played Lieutenant Blake uh, toward the end. Like I, I really feel like if that, if that performance doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. Like the movie really rides on the scene with uh, Colonel McKenzie and the scene with Lieutenant Blake, like being effective. You know, I didn't know who that actor was that played Lieutenant Blake, but I, I thought it was really great. And, I thought it really worked. He was definitely holding back tears in a lower lip quivering fashion. 
I was shocked at how he looked exactly like he was supposed to look. He did. The more handsome older totally. brother of, yeah. the, of the chubby-faced Great casting. Soldier. Yeah, it was good casting. Like, you could pick him out of a crowd as that guy. If you're going to make a movie where the scope of it is all of World War One, the one thing missing here was the story of how the generals and the commanding officers callously threw their men into the machine guns over and over because they had, because the commanding officers were using cavalry war tactics in a trench war. Like what we didn't see is callous commanders. We did not see what we do see in Gallipoli, which is. Yeah. I mean, the movie is sort of setting up the Benedict Cumberbatch character to be that to be guy. That guy. Like when the when Mark Strong says, like, make sure there are other people in the room with you when you give him this news, because this guy is this guy is nuts and he will just throw his men into the wood chipper to have gotten to do something. Oh, I think the power of Mark Strong's comment there isn't that he knew who he was going to report to. I thought I thought it was that it could be anyone. Oh, no, I thought he knew. He oh, knew really? The man. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And okay. was and was giving a coded warning that this guy was a bloodthirsty colonel and was he and you needed witnesses. I love the warning. I love everything about this scene. It's a great warning. It makes it so much more like surprising when Benedict Cumberbatch is able to like pull himself back from that like no fuck it we're going cuz cuz that's like his initial three or four reactions are that and I was just waiting for those two guys outside the bunker to come in and, and drag Schofield away. Like, I, I don't know where those guys went. They were like, no, you're not going in there. And then he goes in and they must have just been like, oh, all right. Well, I guess he went in. Too late now. What we've seen <laughs> in a lot of movies, and I think what we've uh, one thing we've learned over the course of, of doing this show is is the concept of action bias, right? Where if you're a commander in the military – and you're confronted with a situation where you can choose to do something or not do something. Um, commanders often choose do something because because of this idea of action bias. You're just you're there, and you have all these men, and you have all these guns, and your whole purpose is to do, not to sit back in the cut and either wait or certainly not retreat. And so, yeah. Uh, when uh, when Bumberdink gets that letter and reads it and almost immediately has is completely transformed by it. And maybe it's because the letter is is 100 percent no argument definitive of like, <laughs> if you go, you will be court martialed and sent home. But but he's already got men over the top. He could he could reasonably say he was committed and it was too late. I just felt like there wasn't we didn't have. We didn't have the extra 10 seconds of him with his jaw completely clenched, just absolutely like sphincter, like a diamond. Well, I thought I thought that scene was sufficient because it's Schofield that is not believed by the Cumberbatch character, and it's the letter that is effectively persuasive. It's not Schofield. Well, no, he's a Lance and I think Corporal. that was And I think that was enough tension in that moment, for me anyway. Right. But if the director at that point had put Mickey Mouse dancing on the head of a pin, you'd be happy about it because <laughs> you're Mr. Sam Mendez lover. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Mendez head. That's me. 
I go men, for, are you a Mendesman? I go theater to theater, just following his movies across the country. How did the letter make it through the river, un, unsmudged and unsmeared? Right, not covered with blood, not covered with all kinds of, yeah, right? Everything else that that guy owned, well, but that's a, that's a pedant. Ben, let's not get into that pedant. Adam is giving me... He's just he's just staring at me like that's, a sphinx. That's the thing about my resting face is you think I'm mad, but I'm not. It's just how my face looks. All right. That's my secret. Yeah. I'm never mad. <laughs> I hope it's not sentimental, I, I, but I, I want it to be very emotional. Sam Mendes, in, uh, in talking about like what made him want to make this movie called World War I, the stupidest thing humanity ever did to itself, and... I, I I wonder if this movie makes that case for you guys or not. Because I to me, it does not feel like a war is hell. It doesn't feel like a like an anti-war polemic so much as a story of uh you know grit and bravery in the context of a war. Right. Is it is it anti-war or is it war adventure? It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't ever seem to make the case that the war is stupid, you know? In the way that Paths of Glory both depicts that, that incredible trench warfare scene where they, where they really are charging out of a trench across no man's land. Boy, you know what this is? It's like, uh, it's like if that's the breakbeat in Paths of Glory, this is hip hop of that breakbeat. Like it's just, it's just looping that that feeling Whoa, for two hours. What a film paper! You're just calling Sam Mendes Puff Daddy. Which one is trance? <laughs> I'm I'm calling Sam Mendes like a DJ Cool Herc. Yeah, he figured that's out what I was going to say. He, you know, like Me too. Yeah, it's almost too obvious a reference. <laughs> Who is little Jeezy's cousin in this story? <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't need every war film to be to be anti-war to feel like they make the case that war is bad or whatever. And and I don't need every World War One movie to be about how dumb the war is from a, like a genetic depth. But uh, it's surprising that that would be kind of some something he leads with in talking about you know what inspired this film, given its kind of absence from the film as a as an idea. I don't. I I just don't think he needs to make that case. I think the war makes that case for him. I don't know how you don't look at a at a battlefield of ten thousand dead soldiers and and understand the idea of like leaders making decisions based on incomplete information sending these people out to die and not feel like it's an incredibly stupid thing of human of humanity to do to itself i don't think sam mendez is needs to uh inflate that in any way did you feel the character development was sufficient to make you truly care about anybody in the movie truly care where you were emotionally about anyone that's not the main character slash and, characters and the main character slash characters i mean i mean um there the horrors of war are depicted and 
there are a lot of moments in the movie where your gut is tied up because of the tension that you described and also because of the horror that you described. But is there any moment in the movie where you are actually emotionally moved where you might be? uh, So the only moment in the movie where I choked up was the final 30 seconds of the movie when he sits behind that tree, pulls out pictures of his own loved ones, which I was like, whoa, this is, this is interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he turns that photo over and it says, please come home. Please come home to us. Or I couldn't tell whether it said, please come home to us or please come home come to Come back me. to us. Come back to us. That's what it us. says. And I became, I became very emotional at yeah. that moment, like choked up. But prior to that, if the movie had ended without that little coda, I don't think I ever would have felt like I was one of those characters or when we lose our, our titular main character at the beginning, you're shocked. And and the way he bled out was intense. You never see that in real time like that, as you said. Yeah, yeah and I, I loved how he kind of came loose from his experience of reality. Like he couldn't remember why he... Right, am I am I dying on the ground? How did I get? Yeah. There's a thousand years be- between the question of am I going to die and the answer that... Schofield eventually gives him because you see so many films like this where the dying character is told that he's going to be fine. That that was a great moment of truth there. But, but did you feel yeah. did you feel like you cared? My answer to that is yes, but it's not for any specific moment. It's it's a compounding of factors. It's that Schofield is not is not a, a a great and rambo like soldier he is always going to be the underdog in any in any battle he gets himself in and that combined with his essential goodness the goodness that he shows towards Blake the and and that goodness that is often seen as a mistake like by letting the pilot stab Blake for example or by letting that guy uh by taking his hand off of that guy's mouth uh, in town like he's not good at anything or perfect in a way that made me uh, root for him throughout so I did really care about him and his circumstances and I think those are the reasons why like there's not one moment it's a it's an entire thing you know one thing we talk about a lot on this show is like who who the movie is for like what 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 the audience going to the movie is is meant to experience in the movie um in the time and place that it's released and i i found myself wondering especially in the kind of first third before blake gets stabbed like do like are these do these guys feel realistic as 1917 guys like do they is their attitude and and the way they talk to each other realistic to that to that era like i wondered you know like they they have some like aspirations to the like stiff upper lip thing but i wondered if that was like even a stereotype about the english in like that that far back in history you know like over a hundred years ago or or is that a a more modern uh phenomenon and um i guess my conclusion was that they were played as somewhat more modern guys then obviously like 
All Quiet on the Western Front is a film that was made within 15 years of the events it depicts and has access to the kinds of people walking around that would have been participating in that war. But also, it's like a totally different era of filmmaking and acting. So the way they portray those characters is not necessarily super, it is not necessarily hyper naturalistic. And these guys seemed naturalistic for like modern dudes more so than maybe guys in 1917. I think a mid Atlantic accent destroys this film <laughs> and would be bad. The, uh, yeah, that's right. Hey there, boys! Over the top! If you meet my brother, you better give him my rakes! Look at that, a dogfight. It's a couple of ours and one of theirs. I liked the fact that that the movie, we saw a lot of enlisted men and a lot of sergeants and a lot of trench stuff. And we, and we, did, we only saw officers uh, a, a smattering of the time. And so we got that sense of like, Hey, oi, what are you doing? Oh, you've got a secret you got <laughs> you got a secret mission. Oh, right then. On on your way. There you go. Uh we got a lot of that. And very little of the um I say there, boy, what are you doing? Oh no. Oh, you, that's absolutely forbidden. Like we didn't get much of that. <laughs> your brother and fifteen hundred of his best friends will die and it would be pointless. And and I wanted ten percent more stiff upper lip, um, but I didn't I didn't ding the movie for that right because because it was very consciously self consciously but 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 it was it was very aware that it was making a movie about enlisted men and their travails. The ten percent more I wanted was the sort of callousness of the officer class. Uh, I didn't feel like it was a like it was a super. Um, like an off-puttingly modern depiction of what a working class or enlisted soldier would have been like, because this was a shitty war for them. And they would have, there would have been a certain amount of like, right, I don't care. Fuck off. Move on. <laughs> I've got a secret mission then. All right. Cheers. Good luck. Canned dog <laughs> meat. Well, <laughs> might as well. <laughs> This war is for shit. Why don't we just go home? If you've, uh, if you've got any thoughts on our accents. You know where to write. Uh, John Roderick at maxfunkenstein.sex. Oh, hello. How did you get in here? Oh, this, is the, this is the officer's mess. Say what? Toddle on. Over the top, boys. Send up a flare. I say, Bond, how did you get here? Someone out there is programming a keyboard so that every keystroke is is one of those statements. <laughs> <laughs> say what? Oh, hello. All right. I mean, the shot of the biplane, although, I mean, and I know we don't compare movies in the rating system, and I also know that I have referenced 15 other movies that I feel are referenced here, mm -hmm. but that shot is, um, it is the shot from The English Patient. Where the biplane wow. uh, just keeps coming, and you're like, "Say what now? What? Whoa, 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 whoa!" Uh, but the fact that the biplane got shot down and went and went down behind the the ridge, and you wait for the big fireball, 
And then when it doesn't come, I would I felt the foreshadowing of like we're going to see that biplane again. And then it comes. It's so scary. It's great. I mean, it's such a great shot. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the five to seven shots in this movie that belong in the pantheon of war movies. Well, there's there's really only two shots. Oh right, in the I'm movie, sorry. That's John. right. So. The, the one before he <laughs> falls down the stairs, and the one after. I want to I want to single out some of these for kudos. We should definitely review the English Patient at some point. Yeah, agreed. Mm. Agreed. The English Patient does feel like a movie we should talk about. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, you were just mentioning all of the many comparisons you've made to other films. Uh, You know that is in contravention of stated friendly fire rules. Friendly fire rating rules, but not (laughs) friendly fire discussion rules. That's fair. Yeah. All right, I'm here to design the custom rating system for friendly fire movies. And in 1917, uh, there was a moment that I think could be the best rating system used for a film like this. But this may just be so personal to me. It might not. I, I have a feeling it's not going to work for you at all, John. It might. It may or may not work for Ben. We'll see what happens here. <laughs> was it the one Polish guy? It's the scene It right after the biplane. No, wait. <laughs> I think it's before. But correct me and I'll do a retake. This is a high wire act for us because we saw this in theaters. We don't get to, we don't have as much uh, ability to re-reference the film. Uh, That town setup where the biplane crashes, the farm setup there is, uh, it's spooky. It's like so many other locations because uh, it's empty, maybe. Maybe it's not. And there's like, there's signs of life. Like a fresh campfire is a talisman for for dread. Like something something bad is going to happen because enemies may be near. You see all these dead cows around. The last thing you expect to see is a bucket of milk. But when Schofield finds it, uh, he fills his canteen with it. And as he's filling his canteen with this milk, the only thought I had in my head was, well, you just ruined your canteen forever. Right. Because there's no going back for that canteen. <laughs> Can't I think, rinse it out. I think everyone knows this. You get yourself a good, uh, like, resealable coffee mug. Coffee's the only thing you ever put in it. Because anything you ever drink out of it forever is going to taste like coffee. I think the same goes for this canteen. Canteen, not a washable style of canteen. That thing is going to smell like sour milk forever. Yeah, but you see the water that they're getting out of that out of that well. It's like... It's brown, you know, like they they can't they can't be uh, used to like super I th- pure crisp I think clean water. Brown water is going to taste better than any water poured into that canteen after the milk sours. <laughs> I'm almost positive. Can confirm. In the same way that you ruin a canteen by filling it with milk, I think this film effectively ruins World War One films before and those that might come after. I think this was one of the best film going experiences I've had in a long time. I think if you're a person who loves film and I'm talking to Ben specifically, I'm definitely not talking to John. I think you live for the type of moment where you go to a movie theater you experience something powerful with strangers who are totally silent and un- unspeaking, unmoving, unstirring, not fucking with their candy or their phones. And then when the credit comes up and it's dedicated to Mendez's grandfather, like the scene with the tree happens in the picture and then you get the credits and the lights come up and you're just not moving at all. You're just sitting in it and you're and you've got the chills. 
Like that's Wait, why you were sitting in it and had the chills because you'd peed. It's why I love going to movies. It's 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 what I hope to have happen all the time, and it so rarely does. I think, like you said, John, there are five to seven sequences of greatness in this film, and I don't think, I don't think you make a film with that many great moments without it being a five canteen film. I really love this movie. I think it's one of the best war films I've ever seen. It's certainly. That's said with a great amount of subjectivity, but it's one of my favorite war films uh, about any war. I thought it was just fantastic all the way around. Uh, performances, sequences, everything. And that's even that's even after talking about how it takes a little bit of time to like get in equilibrium with the film and how it's trying to tell its story. It's a different feeling. But uh, I think I think it really works in in every way. I want to go see it again in the theater before it leaves, and I think it's got my highest recommendation for anyone to see it in that way. This was shot in an IMAX format, a slightly taller format than what you'd usually get in movie theater. It's the way I saw it. Uh, it's the way I would recommend seeing it. See it as big as you can. You went to IMAX to see it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, I really liked it too, and I also give my highest recommendation to see it in the theater. Um, I also think that I will re- revisit this on home video, though, when it comes out. I I, uh, I could see this being a uh, just a fun movie to throw on. Ever since we started this project, the like the way I pick movies to watch when I'm gonna just sit down and watch a movie has really changed because I really like. I feel like taking down a, a, a war movie or two every single week has me somewhat burnt out on the subject. But this is like such a different version of that, that I I feel like I will want to revisit it more frequently than many of the other films we've seen. I think it is not without its flaws. And so I don't think I can quite get to five uh milk canteens but uh but i'll give it i'll give it a four and a uh, a full-throated recommend you go see i think one of the things about having watched as many war movies as we have is that we have um a, a, a unique syntax or i mean we we understand how war movies are made for the most part now as much as any director going into making a war movie would and i'm noticing now in particular uh, there's still a there's still a lot of desire f- on the part of directors to make war movies. It's still a genre that feels alive. It feels like uh, it's it's as you're as you're thinking about the next movie to make, just like a space epic or a western, are still a very popular option for filmmakers that are into making epics, right? It's not Sam Mendes is probably not going to make a divorce comedy. Um, Sam Mendes is probably not going to make a a movie about like five Jewish writers in New York city in the (laughs) seventies. He wants to make a movie where it shows in IMAX, but we're also seeing, I think in war movies that have come out recently, we're seeing definitely the fact that every war movie has been made. And so directors are trying to find novel ways to tell the story. And it's and I don't think many of them feel like they can now tell a World War II buddy story or or like a Dirty Dozen style movie or a, we're we're no longer able to make even Three Kings right a, a war movie that's a caper 
we're in an era where we're watching war movies that are that have a hundred million dollar budget and are meant to be sweeping, but they're not sweeping like um, Lawrence of Arabia. They're sweeping in a different way and in a way that feels to me cold in the, in the desire to make not just a, like an epic, but one that also reinvents filmmaking or um, put, puts it on the screen in a way that's unimpeachable. And I feel like this movie, this movie has at its soul, a desire to be unimpeachable that supersedes even its desire to tell its own story. And it's saving private Ryan, except it's saving private Ryan and his 1600 closest friends. It's, <laughs> uh, it's Lord of the Rings, except, uh, except Sam Gamgee is Frodo and he dies. It's a, it's a better Gallipoli, except one where the story, even as garbled as Gallipoli is, the story of Gallipoli ends up being more accurately depicted just in the sense of, you know, the, the feeling of having been there for me, there's something so perfect about this movie that it feels like a, it feels like a brand new car. You know, one of the reasons that we loved star Wars when it first came out is that it felt like a used car. So I feel like this movie is, it's absolutely something to see, but I saw it at 10 30 at night with uh, like eight people in the theater. I really walked into that movie theater and was like, wow, my people mm-hmm. like eight bearded dudes in wet wool coats who decided to go to the movies at 10 30 at night. Like, Whoa, I walked in and they all looked at me and then we all looked away from each other. Cause we did not want to know one another. Cause those eight people were there to jack it. <laughs> when the movie was over and all eight of us went to the men's room, uh, I overheard like three different exchanges because, oh, because a lot of these bearded dudes were there with their long suffering girlfriends, which is not to say that Poor there bastards. are, which is not to say that there aren't plenty of women that would go to this movie alone at 1030 at night. That's just not my experience this time. And on the way to the bathroom, I heard three different conversations that went, what'd you think? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was good. I mean, it's, yeah, it was great. Hang on. I got to go to the bathroom. There was no full-throated, like, holy shit, the greatest movie. And there were a couple of people that indicated they'd, this was the second time through. A guy said, I'm glad I saw it a second time. Anyway, I slagged this movie pretty hard. I think it's got, I think it's definitely three and a half stinky canteens and, the, and then one half of a canteen full of brown water. So it's four canteens. <laughs> but one of them is half brown water, half stinky milk. John Roderick at maxfunkenstein.sex. This is a much lower brow podcast than you believe it is, John. Uh, only the highest brow guys nominated at the end of a Friendly Fire episode. Ben, who is your guy? Uh, well, I don't remember what the guy's name was. I think he did He did get named, but uh, there's the moment kind of right after... Uh, Blake's passing when Schofield gets picked up and uh, rides in the back of the lorry for a little while. For a little while, and there, uh, a bunch of guys in the back of this lorry doing bits about, I guess, some general, 
and uh, the first guy that does like attempts to do the general's uh, the, the, his impression of the general and is then shamed by the Sikh dude who has a way better impression of the general. Uh, it was my guy just because like I kind of feel like a you know like a B minus impressionist who's a little bit embarrassed to. Oh, uh, don't be, say that, Ben. You know, have <laughs> you're the impulse, a great impressionist <laughs> to have the impulse to to come out with the impression and then you know realize like oh yeah like in the scheme of things I'm actually not very good at that. He was a prick, and I didn't like that part of him. But uh, but I, I'm trying to get better at not hating people that I see myself in. That would make that would make John the Seek in this. I'm the Seek in in, the a, seek. in this podcast. If someone's <laughs> going to be the Seek, it's going to be me. John, who's your guy though? the The guy that stood out to me was in the in the you know in the penultimate uh, scene in the movie where they are about to go over the top. Like there, one of the things that's good about this movie is there's not a ton of stunt casting. Bumberdick Cumberbunch is in it. Colin Firth is in it. Um, Mark Strong is in it. Those are the three guys that you see and you go like, hey, there's a guy. There's a guy I know. Mark Strong, you hear his voice before you see his face and you know immediately who it is. That's a fun moment. It yeah. is. Where you're just like, oh, hello. <laughs> hello, old friend. I, I'd know those boots. The, uh, the scene in the trench at the end where uh, where Schofield is running down the trench trying to find the colonel and he passes, somebody's like, oh, the captain's right up there and he comes to the captain. The captain's kind of a, like a fat back and he has shell shock. But it's shell shock that, in, that, that involves him just paralyzed and openly weeping as his men are about to go over the top. And that felt like maybe the most gratuitous insertion of an idea into the film. The idea that there needed to be a shell shock guy and that we were going to make the shell shock guy an officer and that we were going to make shell shock guy in the middle of like a, a major panic attack right before going over the wall where everyone else in the movie is super capable Here's this. Here's this fat officer. This Such major a Winchester. Fucking asshole, man. If Shellshock guy wasn't in this film, you'd be like, "Where's Shellshock guy?" There's got to be a. There's got to be Shellshock guys, but like not. This <laughs> not is, blubbery Shellshock. This was guy. just Shellshock guy with with uh, with double parens. Shellshock guy is the half Bob of the World War One movie. That's right. That's right. He's half Bob. Um, but that's not my guy. Thank God. That's not my guy. That'd be too easy. It was too easy. I am the baby. The little girl, the little girl baby <laughs> who we learn. No one knows who its parents are. Yeah. This one gal, this one sort of like 20 year old gal who's living in the wreckage of the town found a baby and was like, I got to get this baby. I got to care for this baby. She's trying to care for this baby, feeding it. I get, I don't know what crackers yeah uh, sweat and then a guy comes along with the bot with the canteen of milk and i looked at that baby and i thought even with a canteen of milk what are this baby's chances and yet i believed in that baby i believe that baby was going to make it through the war i believe that baby was going to make it through the war was going to recount her experiences in a journal that sam mendez was going to find in his research to make this movie he was gonna. He was gonna look at that journal, read the story of the baby, and say, 
I'm going to put this baby in the movie too. I'm going to get this baby in there. I don't know where this is pre-production. I don't know where I'm going to put this baby. And I'm like, that's me. I'm that baby, that little girl baby. Well, you've been a baby throughout this entire episode, John. I think that's a great pick by you. Who's your guy, Adam? I think one of the actors that that you hear and recognize and are delighted at seeing is the Andrew Scott, Lieutenant Leslie character. Uh, And I just loved his vibe with that. Like before they... Before Blake and Schofield go on their mission, Blake and Schofield have to wind their way through that initial trench, trench one. And they finally get to the end where they're about to go over. And uh, Leslie knows the score. Leslie gives them the flare gun to use when they make it. And he's pissed because he knows he's not going to get that flare gun back. <laughs> Leslie was great. I'm and, surprised you didn't use the flare gun as the rating. And, uh, and his sarcastic anointing of them with the liquor out of his flask. <laughs> That performance was so beautiful and funny. Like, there are moments of comedy in this movie, and that's one of them. There where are you're zero like, moments of comedy in this movie, thought, except for that one. That that was fucking great. Like the like, I don't I don't know how you direct someone into sarcastically spilling your booze on them, but that was fucking it right there. Uh, Andrew Scott just sort of like, Bleh, bleh. <laughs> all right, get the fuck out, and he kind of turns his back on them, and he doesn't even watch them go, like. Great moment in the movie. Great tone setter. There's, There are all kinds of people in this film and in war films in general, and you get the sarcastic guy in almost all of them. He's sort of the rickles of the thing here. And uh, for this scene, Leslie's my guy. Good guy. Good guy. Well, uh, so I think what we'll do is edit in our, uh, our dice roll from... Uh, from the previous episode, right here. All right, All right roll that go. bone. Here we go. Thirty-three, the highest level of Mason <laughs> that you know about. The age that Jesus died. The number thirty-three uh, is on every bottle of Rolling Rock. This is a a, a World War Two film. From 1943, directed by Howard Hawks. Oh! Yeah! It's Air Force. Cool. Whoa, Air Force. And this is before there was an Air Force. Yeah. This is Air Force. They came up with the name. I feel like this is a movie title that should have an exclamation point at the end. Air Force colon exclamation point. <laughs> Looking cool. forward to it. Uh, that'll be next week. We are uh, headed back into the cinema of the 40s. Uh, so we'll leave it with Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is a podcast that's made possible by the support of our listeners like you. To make sure that Friendly Fire continues, visit MaximumFun.org join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to our monthly Pork Chop episodes, as well as all the other MaxFun bonus content. 
If you want to chat about our podcast on various forms of social media, just search for our discussion groups or use the hashtag Friendly Fire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is found at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And you can find me at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. I'm not even sure if Rob is listening at this point. Uh, I think he's just stacking and racking these shows. Good old bare minimum Rob Schulte. (laughs) That's just a joke, Rob. We love you. Thanks for your work. Yeah, thanks for your service, Rob. Yeah, Rob's the real hero of 1917. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.